welcome back to CBA Research Christian Podcast and welcome back to this series on LBCF in SG. We have finally finished uh we have finally finished chapter one on the scriptures. Uh, I know that I've been procrastinating and I know that I'm gonna drop all three episodes together back to back uh today. So we're gonna go and start uh with chapter two today on God and of the Holy Trinity. So we're gonna start with chapter one. Uh sorry with chapter one. With paragraph one, my gosh, sorry, my brain is still on chapter one. I'm going to start with paragraph one, we're talking about the Lord our God. Today I'm joined with Chris, Dave, and Joanna. Uh, Caleb won't be joining us today. He's stuck in camp, sadly. He won't be joining us today. Alright, so let's start with talking about the oneness of God. You know, when we look at paragraph one, the first thing that comes to us, that is explicitly shown to us, is that the Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose substance whose subsistence is in and of himself. That is very interesting because Christians we always talk about the Trinity. We talk about the Holy Trinity, we talk about God the Father, we talk about the distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So my first question to all of us here, you know, before we start uh, as we start our discussion is how do we understand the oneness of God? How do we call ourselves a monotheistic faith? But yet we say that there are three distinct persons of the Triune Godhead. So that's the first question that I want us to maybe we can explore a bit more on that. Yeah. If you guys wish to talk about the ontological uh, trinity, please go ahead. <laughs> Explain the term. Yeah, sorry, what was the question again? Sorry. I was yeah. No, I was I was asking uh you know Christians Christianity, we talk about the Trinity, right? We talk about the three distinct person in the Trinity, right? So how can we call ourselves a monotheistic faith when we have three different people of the Trinity? Yeah, uh, I guess also, I will start out off with this. Explain ontological Trinity, please, thank you. <laughs> why do you keep going on and on and on about um, this thing called ontolo- uh, ontology or the ontology of the Trinity, which actually doesn't really come about until um, paragraph 3. Yeah. yeah, actually, true. that aspect of God comes out in paragraph 3, so I don't know why he's so excited when we're on paragraph 1. I think he's jumping the gun, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, I guess to just kick off our discussion here, uh, we as Christians, we believe that the, the God of the Bible is a triune God, okay? Tri- trinity, tri-unity. And what that simply means is that our God is one in being, Okay, one in being, in essence, but three in persons. Okay, so that's as simple as I can as I can keep it. Um, so why do we? Why can we still call ourselves monotheists? Why can we still say that we only believe in one God? Because we believe in one God, but He reveals Himself in three distinct persons. Okay, all operating of their own accord. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's, he he a co. Let me let me dig up James White's definition of the Trinity. Yeah, I I, I yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. So James White calls the Trinity, or rather describes God in in this sense. He says that within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so so that that that's his his definition, lah. Um, there eternally exists three persons 
of what we call the Godhead. Yeah. So that that's I guess as much of an introduction as I can keep it for now. Alright, mm. thanks Chris. I'm sorry I need to jump the gun because I believe that the Christian faith we need to start off by exploring a bit of the tree the understanding of Trinity first of all. Yes, Trinity is in paragraph three. Uh, the first two paragraphs talk about God as a Godhead uh, as one. Talk about the Godhead first. So but I, I feel that this uh, as this has to be established first of all <laughs> up front when we talk about God. But yes, thank you Chris for that. Yeah, I will not dwell too much on that for now. Okay, when when Christian talk about one and only one only living and true God, what kind of connotation are we trying to say? You know, why do we say that is the one only living and true God? Do you guys want to uh expound on that a bit more? Like, why do you think it is expressed in such a way, such a manner? Because the Bible. Articulate to God like that. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so okay, so I and this one, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be an audio London Baptist confession guy. Okay, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to read out literally to you what, how the confessions quote or cite the text right in front of you. But but you can't do that. You have babies in the water. You can't do that, uh, Dave, Dave. I'm so sorry. Uh, so for example, in First Thessalonians chapter one verse nine. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Um, so, so partly one of the reasons is because the Bible articulates God as living and true. That's number one. And number two, um, if you see First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, living and true God is a contrast to idols, right? And idols are dead and false. That is the definition, right? And that's why whoever worships idols, they themselves are dead and liars, as what Romans 1 would say. And when you, in contrast, sorry, in contrast to the idols, you have the living and true God. So I think that is why the, the confession would say that there's only one living and true God. All right. So what kind of connotation does it have you know, when we talk, when we come to discussion with uh, different people in the world today? non-Christians, what kind of implications will having and asserting that the God that we call God is the one and only true and living God? The question is, what are the implications of talking to non-Christians? Yeah, our conversation, how does this kind of understanding of God being the one and only true God have uh, have towards our conversation with non-Christians? Um, I, I think the answer to that can be found in the statement itself. The fact that our God is the one and the living God, by implication, it means that all other gods are not the one and they are dead. So <laughs> I think the answer is in the very statement. Yeah. But do you think that Christians in our conversation today, at least in Singapore, are we giving that kind of um this kind of affirmation of our faith? You know, be our own lives, be our conversation. Do we do you think that there's a lack of this kind of understanding? Uh, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, because in Singapore, uh, I, w- I would call it a very, uh, in the name of racial harmony, uh, I think many of us as Christians, we have used that as an excuse to be lazy in our proclamation of the gospel, okay, of the exclusivity of Christianity. Um, of course, you know, racial harmony is meant to be so that we do not beat each other up and kill each other. But 
that doesn't mean that we don't have freedom of speech. No, that doesn't mean that we should keep our mouth shut you know, about our religion. And yes, it is a religion, not just a relationship. Anyway, um, but yes, I, I do think that us as Singaporean Christians at large, we tend to have become really quite timid in terms of sharing our faith with those around us. Okay. Uh, Dave, what about you? Have you like have experience of, you know, be your own church or your own Christian groups that they don't really express this understanding of the one and only true living God? Do you have this kind of experience before? Oh, yes. Um, particularly um, when they believe in superstition. So if the one and true living God is true and it's and since it's true, it's not if it's since it is, then when we believe in superstition, like say things like um oh you know the you know Buddhism, you know, then there's those candles and say, Oh, if I step on it, I'm scared ghosts will find me. You know, or they when you know when if you go to the mirror then you shout bloody Mary, bloody Mary, and then boom, bloody Mary will actually come out, right? Or even one more example one is zodiac signs right um you know oh are you a pisces are you a cancer um are you a Vir- Virgo? <laughs> yeah yeah the things that you can see all this comes from a, a presupposition that the the christ the god of the bible is not the true and living god because you're getting revelation from things outside of him uh god says all these things uh, you know, God has a lot to say about these things and mostly bad news for you, bro. It's bad stuff, you know. Um, so I think even within the Christian faith, uh, even though we maybe joke, oh, you know, I, I'm <laughs> I'm a Pisces, sometimes we might give off the impression that actually all these other beliefs are, in, are, are compatible with the one true living God. Lah. So that's what I would say. Yeah, that, that is very true. Right? <laughs> Singapore society... There are certain superstitions that we have so-called imported from our own tradition, especially being Chin- Chinese for us, uh, there are a lot of superstitions out there. Yes, Chris. Yeah, um, yeah so um, just touching upon that whole Chinese superstitions, um, I think for us as Christians, we are not exempted from using those things, or rather we are not excused from being safe from those superstitions because I, I do know of some Christians who have started to adopt certain lingos like karma, okay? You do good, expect God to reward you. You do bad, expect God to punish you somehow in the future. There's some idea of karma there. Even though karma is actually supposed to only be applied after death, but anyway, see, they do even have a proper understanding of superstition. But anyway, um, another thing, uh, when we talk about like bad things, hypothetical bad scenarios, people like to say, touch wood. Okay, you might have heard of that before. Touch wood, touch wood, don't say that, no? Bad luck, bad luck, bad juju, okay, whatever. And it annoys me. Every time I hear my auntie and uncle always say, touch wood, touch wood, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I get quite annoyed because it's just superstition, you know. And of course, we know that our God is above all these so-called little superstitions. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the two of you brought up two very great examples. Uh, even I myself, from my own church, I've experienced a lot of superstitions. Uh, yeah, not say a lot, uh, but yes, there's there's a certain form of superstitions out there, uh, no matter what, uh, they just import it into Christianity. Even though to be honest, it's not compatible with scriptures at all. So yeah, I, I think this is this is this, yeah, that's very true. Jo- Joanna, how about you? Do, you? do you have any experiences of these kind of things? Um, I think my mom 
always likes to say touch wood <laughs> or toy. Uh. Especially when I talk about death. Yes, death is a very sensitive topic in, in the Super Chinese. sensitive for the boomers. I think not just for the boomers though. I feel that everyone is sensitive with the topic of death. In fact, I feel that yeah, Christians, when we talk about death, it's just, a, it's just a taboo thing. No matter which generation you're from, just don't talk about it, generally speaking. But yet, you know, if you believe in the true and living God, I don't think there's much to fear in death in the first place. Is there any other things you guys want to add on, on this part? Okay, then we shall move on first. Uh, okay, so after this, uh, so called, I guess we can put it as a declaration. Subsequently, you have a whole list of God's attribute and characteristic. I wish to go through them one by one, but I think that it's going to be very difficult to do that. So, um, I guess we can go through them. Uh, I, I guess we can go pick and choose a few to go through. Oh, sorry, before that, I missed out something. Who, in essence, cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Wow, wow, you guys think on this. That... We as men cannot comprehend God, the essence of God. What, what, what are your takes on this first? Before we go on to the characteristic attribute, I just realized that I missed out this, this quite important statement. Yeah, I, I think that simply talks about how um, the God is so mysterious in that sense where our finite human minds can never hope to understand him by ourselves. So uh, when the confession says, uh, God cannot be comprehended by anything but himself. I think it's quite safe to say that what it means is that to understand God, we must have revelation from God. Okay, to really understand his essence or even the whole concept of this idea of a trinity because um, it, on a human standpoint, it might be very, very hard, might even be impossible to wrap our, our minds around such a concept or such an idea. That's why we need the Bible, okay, God's revelation, God's truth. Um, no, God telling us about Himself to inform us what He is like. Yeah, Thank, thanks, Chris, for that. Uh, Dave, anything on this? Yeah, so this is regarding what Chris mentioned the idea that we need revelation. And I think I just want to add a kind of a practical point on that. And I think that is the way we read our Bibles. Um, when Christians read their Bibles, even in the academic circle, they read the Bible as literature, right? As any human writing. So what they do is, okay, it's a subject to be studied, like another, another like English or another literature book. And then they read and then they say, and then, okay, and then whatever knowledge they have is through their hard work and strong exegesis and interpretation. And the thing is that, yes, there's a certain human element to the Bible, sure, but primarily and ultimately, um, we see the Bible as revelation from God. So when we open the Bible, we realize it's, it's not us um, um, kind of studying the text, but it's more of God revealing to us through the word, through his spirit uh, to us. And so that so much that whatever we learn from the Bible, uh, yes, through exegesis and everything, we have to ultimately realize that it's all a gift, right? Um, uh, Matthew, uh, I think it was 13, uh, or it says that, oh, Peter says, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And Peter, Jesus says, Oh, Simon Bar of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And you can apply that to when we read the Bible, when we open the scriptures. Um, yes, um, God speaks to us and whatever we learn is from God himself. And so that ultimately, that really radically changes the way we open scripture every morning or every night or whatever. Yeah. 
And so we come with how humility, right? Not saying that we don't understand anything. We, we cannot understand anything without the scripture itself. Yeah. So even what yeah, in fact, in fact, yeah. Yeah. Just like John Piper, I don't know, I don't know where you think of this, but John Piper um, makes a very interesting statement on when he says when he reads the Bible, time and again he would pray the Holy Spirit will reveal um, stuff to him um, as he reads the Bible. Yeah, so that's actually very good, lah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need the Holy Spirit illumination. Right? If not, we don't understand. We cannot. We are incapable of understanding. Yeah, All right. So moving on, you know, we as, as I mentioned before, we have. A list of um, we have a list of attributes and and characteristics of God. So I will give us the liberty to choose a few because I understand that we don't really have the time. So 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 uh uh, Dave, how about let's start with you? Which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> okay, this is why it's cut because I need to look at it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, I say so. Also, we go by we go by the list like, itself. We just pick one to choose because there is really a lot. I don't think we can talk about all of them. Yeah, so actually, for this paragraph, you're focusing more on God Himself, right? Not so much yeah, yeah, about yeah. Trinity, right? Yeah, no, no it's but, not so much about Trinity. It's just God. It's just God. Yeah, yeah, God. yeah. yeah. No, but I just wanted to make establish that ground of the Trinity understanding. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let's just look through, lah, because there's really a lot. I do. I guess you can put a few together, but I think we can talk individually also about each characteristic of God. Okay, I, I will I will talk about, I guess, a, a few attributes, um, mm-hmm. and then I will just kind of use the attribute to counter popular Christian notions, uh, okay? okay? So, yeah, for ex- so. so for example, if you read there, it says God is immutable, meaning wait, 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 he does you're not change. In you're starting in it. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Just start, just start, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. So one aspect I would say is that God is immutable, means God does not change. He is the same uh, from eternity past to eternity all the way to the end. So the same God, the God in the Old Testament, the same God in the New Testament. And that will counter a lot of Christian notion that the God in the Old Testament is cruel and, and judgmental, whereas the God in the New Testament is loving and kind. Okay, so immutability of God goes against that right um i think and i believe this is to be true um perseverance of the saints can be seen in immutability of god right when god says i love you as my people and i'll keep you as my people and you cannot expect the next day he will change his mind and says i don't love you anymore i said you know i said i'll keep you as my people i'll not lose anyone it's like i i don't care you know so the immutability of god um uh, grounds the believer's confidence that he who is saved, truly saved today, will be surely saved all the way to the end. Because the same God who keeps him today is the same God who keeps him to the end. Yeah, um, I think that's one uh, attribute I want to flesh out. The, the unchangingness, uh, unchanging God. In that sense. Yeah, when we talk about the when we talk about perseverance of the saints, when we go to decree, it also talks a lot about talks a lot about this also. Uh, how about invisible without body parts or passion? You know, I I I always find that Christians like to depict God in a certain way. You know, let's not talk about Christ, but God as a whole. You know, is that I believe that most of us can will tend to imagine God as a human being, something in one form or another. So I don't know what are your takes on this. Yeah. So. 
um, historically speaking, Christians have, have always believed that God is spirit. Is rather, um, he is spirit in that he is immaterial. We can't physically see him. Okay, so God in and of himself is spirit. Okay, he exists in a, you could say, an entirely different sphere. Okay, he exists in an entirely different kind of way that, again, naturally we cannot comprehend. Um, but you know, something amazing happened 2,000 years ago, and we know that that is when Jesus came to earth. And what that meant was God taking on human flesh to dwell, to walk among us. So that, that, that was you know, the striking point in the human history where God himself, who in, or, in and of his, himself is spirit, took on physical human flesh so that we, we might truly come to know him. Uh, so... Uh, that's what the confessions talk about when he is the pure, uh, pure, the most pure spirit. He is invisible, without body parts or passions. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, passions. Uh, okay, I'm not sure what the confessions mean by passions here. I'm thinking of the impassibility of God, which is another another attribute altogether. But <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, basically. Uh, the doctrine of impassibility, uh, I, I actually only really got to know this through Cornelius Ventil, but it's quite cool. <laughs> it talks about how actually a lot of us as Christians, we like to think that something can break God's heart. Okay, We can actually make God like cry or make God really, really sad. But you know, when we think more about it, when we th- think a little bit more about that idea, like th- that's just one example. If we can really actually make God really, really sad or disheartened by something that we did, it kind of implies that God did not really see that coming. Uh, by that kind of emotional reaction, yeah, you know, God, something can, you know, affect God in that sense. I don't know if I'm making sense here, but something can really come God's way that makes him respond in such a, it's as if he didn't really see this coming, you know. But of course, we would say that God is, you know, he knows the future. You know, God, n- nothing can surprise God. Okay, that, that's what we get from the Bible. Okay, nothing happens outside of his counsel. Okay, nothing happens outside of his decree. Okay, so, of course, God, in various parts of scripture, uses kind of human emotions or human descriptions to kind of describe, uh, to express himself to, in, 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 as part of his revelation to his people. But actually, we must, we must not make the danger of stretching that, to, stretching that to the point where God himself you know, feels exactly the same way as us humans feel. So it's quite a deep topic. It's quite a deep topic, but in essence, it, it really talks about how um, God is not the same as us. Okay? There's, the, there's this creator and creature distinction. Yes, God uses certain terms that sound human to help us understand him better, but that doesn't mean he really responds in such a human manner. Does that make sense? So that's in, in essence, that's what impassibility means. Nothing can pass God. Nothing can t- uh, catch God off, uh, off guard. Yeah. So if you want to do more research, I think just Google. Uh, I'm sure there are many resources out there. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, for that. Uh, yeah. So do you guys find that there are, you know, in your own churches, the Christians that you guys hang out around with, do you find that sometimes they might have a kind of impression of God, you know, God the Father to be, like that, this is their form of imagination. 
do you think that that itself is, is wrong or do you think that you know it's okay to think of it in this kind of sense and i'm talking about like a physical form you know sometimes people might imagine physical forms of god and whatsoever i think a lot of non-believers kind of imagine jesus to be what the catholics um display him to be like in terms of like the statues or the images that they put i think i think in general a lot of people associate jesus with that yep if we will talk about christ then yes that's uh, the icons right we're talking about the icons yeah the images are yeah the images the Catholic uh, images yeah, yeah yeah what do you guys think about that oops yes okay so i agree uh the idea that uh, people put an image uh, of god um, and then, of course, they, they have this physical image of Jesus Christ, right? And then, of course, the question would be, okay, David, you told me, you know, you, you, you talk to me, you say, look at Jesus, look at Christ. So how else would I look at Christ unless I, I picture his face with his, you know, beard and everything? But then you look at the Bible, how does Paul say to look at Jesus Christ? The, the gospel is the gospel, right? Um, that the face of Jesus Christ is seen in the glory of God in the gospel, right? Even in First Peter, he says, or Second Peter, he says, uh, though you do have not seen him, yet you rejoice in him, right? So there's this aspect of relief by faith and not by sight. And again, uh, how do we see God? Um, how do we see God himself? Um, Jesus says that if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And how do we see Jesus? It is as what I think it's Calvin. He says, you see Jesus clothed in the gospel. Uh, when, when we preach Christ and him crucified and his resurrected and ascension, we are showing people Christ. And I think um, that's actually a very, I find that response very helpful because it's very Christ-centered. It points you back to the gospel. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Dave, for that. Chris, anything to add on? Uh, nothing much, but I, I guess uh, to quickly add on to what David shared, I think a, a lot of people they like to a lot of a lot of our media today loves to portray Jesus in like you know there he is you know that's how he might look like you know that's how he might have behaved like you know look at this visual representation of Jesus himself and I think don't even have to look at Netflix we don't need, don't even need to, need to look at movies okay we just need to look at what kind of pictures do our church members post okay and, and I see all kinds of things. I see pictures of Jesus hugging a little girl. You know, it's like, oh, I need my Savior's loving embrace. Or, you know, a picture of Jesus holding a sheep on his shoulders. Oh, you know, Jesus finds the lost sheep. Now, I am the lost sheep. Carries me on his shoulders. Oh, hallelujah. You know, all, all kinds of strange things, okay? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When reform people basically okay reform people traditionally would have been against such depictions of christ um, because we have no real uh, evidence if you will of how jesus looked like okay we have no photos no cameras at that time so uh, we would believe that this goes hand in hand with the second commandment which says thou shalt not create any image representing me you can't even look create anything that looks like the god of the bible you know, um, it, it will be treated as idolatry, okay? Because your 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 um, picture in your mind is most probably, if not definitely, not how Jesus really looked like. So because we do not know, it's best not to speculate and, and, and thus create an idol. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks very much for that. Uh, yeah, so as you guys have pointed out, yeah, it's not so much of the focus of how Christ looked like. I, I think the main focus of Christianity has never been how Christ looked like. How tall was Jesus? Was he fat? Was he skinny? If he's brown, is he slightly whiter or darker? Not so much of that. In fact, a lot of people have argued that the depiction of the Catholic Church of Christ is wrong because it's too white. <laughs> he is too white for a Hebrew, for a Jew. So yeah, I, I think that is very much true for the case that we are discussing right here. The focus should be on the gospel itself of what Christ has came to preach. Alright, so with that, let's, let us move on. Next attribute, next characteristic. Chris, throw something out. Just now I saw that you were ready. Uh, the other attributes is it? So after immutable, um, uh, I'll just go in order. So since they talked about the uh, immutability of God, I'll just talk about what does God being immense mean? Uh, simply means okay, the immensity of God is also known as more popular. Um, a more popular term for it is the omnipresence of God. Okay, that God is everywhere. God is not confined to any physical location. God is not confined to any geographical location. Okay, so a, lo a lot of people's conception of God is that he dwells in temples. Or maybe people think of Christians today that God, our God only dwells in the church. You know, and again, the media, the media has distorted okay, this idea of God altogether. You notice in those horror movies, the ghosts and the vampires, what are they most afraid of? The church. You know, you know, they, they step inside the church and then the organ starts playing and then you have the choir. And then suddenly the vampire starts catching fire, you know. Wow, I'm on holy ground. Oh no, ah. You know, <laughs> that, that kind of depiction where that, that God's presence is saturated or confined to one specific location, that, that he is more at some place than others. Um, but of course, that's not how the Bible depicts God. Okay, the Bible says that, uh, let, let me quote some verses. Um, when it talks about the immensity of God, okay, it says that uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 24, it says that the God who made everything in heaven and earth does not live in temples made by human hands. Okay, another, another part of scripture, um, Jeremiah 23, verse 23 to 24, God says, Am I only a God that's nearby? Okay, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do I. Uh, do not, uh, sorry, do I not fill heaven and earth? Okay, so um, there are other parts of scripture which really talk about how even heaven and earth cannot contain God. God's omnipresence fills every part of space with his being. So that's in essence what um, the doctrine of immensity is all about. Yeah. Alright, thanks Chris for that. <laughs> now that's since you guys want to go in order, I guess we can go in order for now. Because each one of them actually have a reference verse. So we will do the order for the reference verses first. Eternal. Next attribute about God. Eternal. What does it mean? What kind of implications might it have for us as Christians? In fact, not just Christians, for everyone. Yeah, eternal uh, simply means that before eternity passed, God always has existed. And all the way to eternity uh, future, for all eternity, He will always exist. Um, th that's as clear as I can put it. He has always been existing and he always be existing. Yeah. Right. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And then I like it because in verse 3 it contrasts us men. You return men to dust and say, Return, O children of man. 
So I think the eternalness of God should humble us, definitely for sure. So the Mormons are wrong. The 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 the, the Mormons say that God is not eternal. Yeah, yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Let's let's move on to the next one. Uh, incomprehensible. Incom- we, we we touched on a bit about that the incomprehensibility of God. You know, we talk about him being spirit. You guys want to expound a bit a bit more, or it's okay if we move on to the next one. Um, for God's incomprehensibility, we talked a bit a bit about it just now. But just to quote just one passage of scripture, I think it summarizes it very well. Um, Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty three to thirty six. You might have heard this before. It says, Paul says about God, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And what Paul is saying here is simply, who can understand the mind of God? God knows best. I don't know best. But no, God, uh, I can't expect to understand the mind of God. But I know that his ways are perfect. So in that sense, he is incomprehensible. Yeah. So as Christians... Well, I'm not saying that we don't strive to know God, but we understand that we are limited in our knowledge of God, no matter how much we try. And so ultimately, we should put our trust in God. Right. So I, I guess that is a point. All right, Ken. Uh, let us move on. Uh, Almighty. Sorry, <laughs> I was I got a quote. I thought I grew fine. Yeah, Almighty. God being Almighty. Let's just alternate. Uh. Dave, come. Let's talk about Almighty Nose of God. Almighty God, sorry. Just sing the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh. Oh, okay. Ken, oh. moving on. Nick. <laughs> exactly. Let, let, me, let me see. So, so to explain this right here, just quote the hymn, Holy, 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 and then you just quote all, all four sentences. <laughs> but yeah, this yeah. is Almighty God, is it? <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, so, so, so okay. So, uh, the, the, I'm looking both at the Westminster and the London Baptist. Um, of course, and some texts go out is Genesis 17 verse 1. Uh, another one would be Revelations verse, <laughs> chapter 4 verse 8. <laughs> it says, <laughs> Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> okay, anyway, okay. holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Yes. So this shows that God's power, God's might, He's strong, He's all powerful. Yeah. So, so, okay, when we talk about almightiness of God, we are talking about the sovereignty of God in some ways also. You know, it, 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 there is a link. I'm not saying that it's very mm. explicit, but there will be a link. Uh, my, my question to you guys is that, do you think that as Christians today, we are treating God as the Almighty? And, you know, what are the issues that we might have when we are, we as Christians in Singapore, like, at least, are we treating God as the Almighty? Or are we not? Like, what, what are the shortcomings of us in, in terms of treating God as the Almighty? Um, there's so many, there's so many things I can think of. Um, just just give sure. a good example, throw it out, yeah. Yeah, if I were to talk about all of them, I think we would overrun our time for today. But <laughs> yeah, so I think as Christians today, it is so easy for us to say that God is all powerful. Okay, you ask any Christian, you'll say that yes, Amen, omnipotent. Okay, do even use that big word? God is omnipotent. But yet, in 
their application of that knowledge of that so-called belief it is totally inconsistent okay and this can manifest itself in a couple of manners for example for example um wow so many i can think of okay, just one okay just one maybe if i have time i can address others how did they believe that people are saved okay um this this has to do with the, the doctrine of salvation how are people saved from their sin how do people become to uh, become christians how do they come to christ and you know most christians today would say that yeah um i heard the gospel and by my free will i chose to believe god okay so okay let, let's just buy that statement for the sake of argument and then you'll say um yeah but okay if, since god is omnipotent um, can he save everybody in the world? Okay, everyone. Can he save everyone if he wanted to? Yes, they would say. They, then, then that's when the reply will come. Why not? Then why doesn't he save everybody since he's omnipotent, right? And what most Christians say today is that actually God's omnipotence is limited by something. And that is man's free will. Okay, God can do anything he wants except violate man's free will. Now, now. That doesn't really sound very omnipotent. I mean, if you think about it, um, if God is all-powerful, which logically means he can do whatever he wants, he shouldn't be stopped by anything. But yet, here you have many Christians today saying that you know, not even God can overcome my free will. Okay, so, so that's just one area in which I can think of, that man does not really believe in God's omnipotence. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh, this idea of free will has been long for a very long time, but I believe that it has caught on with many churches today because, hey, people today like liberty. They like to choose. They like their quote-unquote freedom as much as they can exercise yeah. it. Time, or maybe, I don't know if David wants to talk about it, but another way that people can manifest their inconsistency with the doctrine of God's omnipotence is through their apologetic methodology. Oh. Right? Wow, 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 Chris, wow, you just ducked there. You just went there. Wow. Uh, uh, no, oh. okay, so. <laughs> really want to about it, uh. you, want to, you want to explain a bit? Con- make it okay, concise, so, make it quick. Okay, so, what I mean by that, okay, that, that people do not really believe that God is all powerful, and this comes out through their, the way that they do apologetics, okay, if, if they even know what apologetics is. Um. So we talked a bit about this in earlier sessions, okay, from chapter one. I'm not sure how much you guys will be able to remember. But they, they will say that, yeah, Jesus is all-powerful. That means he has all rule over every system in this world. Okay, that God, that God is the one who is in charge of all things. See, just I quoted Romans 11, verse 36, right? From all things, all things come from God. And all things even include our ability to reason, okay, our ability to understand things, our ability to perceive reality. Okay, these are just some aspects of, of that. And, 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 and you know, you, we have unbelievers, okay, unbelievers who don't believe in God, non-Christians who hate God, but yet they're assuming a lot of things that can only be because of God. Okay, they're assuming things that can only be true if God were to exist. And because he exists, they can assume them rightly. So, so you have non-Christians who assume things like objective morality. So you have non-Christians who deep down inside, they will know that some things are truly good and some things are truly bad. 
uh, you know, but of course, we, uh, with a worldview that does not have God, we, they really cannot account for anything objective. But yet, when Christians engage with such people, they will not point out the flaws in that they are presupposing objective standards. Okay, they, they, they will not point that out. They will, they will let the unbeliever go about stealing these things. Okay, you, you could say, um, you know, ignoring the authority of Jesus. And then, you know, th- these Christians who try to defend the, the faith will say that, yeah, you know, uh, we shouldn't really press the fact that, you know, Jesus is in charge of morality or that Jesus is in charge of our ability to reason or Jesus is in charge of, you know, uh, all these things, you know, all these things that, that form our presuppositions. So it's, it's a big topic, okay? Um, I won't be surprised if some of us are confused. I think we'll save this for another time. But what I'm saying is, um, Christians, they reject or they give up okay, God's omnipotence in all areas of life. Okay? Christians give up God's omnipotence in that you know, God is not really all-powerful. God is not really all-governing in terms of you know, even the unbeliever's ability to reason about things. Okay? So that, that, that's as simple as I can keep it. Yeah. So basically, Chris, you are suggesting that when we are doing apologetics, we don't start with the question of if there is a God, but we start with the <laughs> statement and assertion of since there is a God. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Chris, for that. Yeah, maybe someday we'll do on apologetics and talk a bit more about this uh, train of thoughts. Uh, yeah, this train of apologetics. We don't really have much time to do it in this episode. Alright, Ken, let's, let's move on to the next one. Um, Most holy. Sorry, every way infinite uh, and most holy. Holy. Yes, yes, yes. We can sing holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Do you guys want to explain? You know, explain a bit about hol- holiness of God. It's a very general way of putting it. This is also a large topic, I understand, but, but just give us a very brief introduction. Sure. Um, so, I will start off with this. Uh, as how Asis Proud did it, did it in his book, Holiness of God. Um, there is, I, I remember doing it in another podcast, I think, with the a guy called uh, Reform Singaporean. Yeah, so um, we, the, if, if you look in the Bible, people describe God, right? Love, God is love, God is gracious, God is merciful, you know? God is steadfast love and abounding steadfast love and uh, patient, right? But then there is one attribute um, that is described not just once, not just twice, but three times in a row. And that is holy. Nowhere in the Bible do you say, God is love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, 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 but it's God is holy, holy, holy. It says here, even uh, as it's quoted, uh, cited here, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. So, um, what, what is holy? So, uh, at the prime, I think how I define holiness is that God is other. He's another class. He is not like us, right? Um, so when we say uh, God has holy love, meaning His love is other from us. When we say uh, God is um, holy justice, meaning His justice is other from us. So that's first way um, to define it. He's other from us. I think the second way uh, we normally define holiness is that He hates sin. He is righteous, he's pure, um, he cannot tolerate any wrongdoing, any idolatry. Um, that's why he cannot just anyhow forgive people. Okay. So yeah, that is what God that's what post holy means. Lah. 
Yeah, the holiness of God is a very actually a very big topic. And it's very interesting that how God in Leviticus straight up before like in most of the uh as he's setting up the laws, he always say he always reminds the Israel, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I think the very understanding and the very foundational understanding of Christians' holiness is simply because God is holy. And so the assertion right here is really important for us to know. Well, thanks, Dave, for that. Uh, I want to give a comment. Um, yes. Just, I think Paul Washer did it very well. Um, I think one of the ways uh, people don't understand God's holiness is that their perception of how God forgives them is we do something wrong and God just forgives. And then our sins are gone, right? In fact, a lot of non-Christians ask me, actually, David, uh, a bit unfair. How if this long this this guy, right, do so many wrong things, and then he believed in God, and then he's suddenly forgiven? A bit unfair, right? Isn't it? Or not fair? And I tell him exactly, it's not fair, right? Um, how can God just forgive us right away, right? And then, of course, we'll talk about Jesus Christ and everything, uh, and how he's he's only in him that we are forgiven. But I think. One of the point out that is that most Christians, the notion of God forgiving them is okay. You know, I just forgive you. It's fine. You just need to do, be be a, be a bit more good person. Just be more sincere, and I'll forgive you. Um, and I think that uh, forgets that God is holy. Yeah, and God is most free. <laughs> and to answer that, that is God is most free. We will we will actually go to that soon, very soon. Uh, let's talk about most wise. The next thing after the holiness of God is He is most wise. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the most wise? Uh, I mean, simply it simply means that God knows best. Okay, God's ways are the best. <laughs> That's the simplest summary I can give you. And again, I think Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty-three to thirty-six. I think it Paul encapsulates that idea very well. Okay, that that my ways are trash. God's ways are be- are better. Okay, so my trash mind needs to submit to God's wise mind. Okay, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I feel that that's a very good summary. Thanks, Chris, for that. Most free. Let's talk about that. Since we have talked about the freedom of man, the liberty of man, we all want liberty. Let's talk about God being the most free. What, what do you guys have to talk about on that? What do you guys have to say on that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I guess I can say some things about what it means for God to be the most free being, okay? Uh, again, I, I think in the realm of um, philosophy, or rather Christian philosophy, we like to think about this distinction. This is called the creator-creature distinction. Okay, and, and I think that's very important to get. And I think a, a lot of Christians today, they because of a failure to have this creator-creature uh, distinction, you know, we... Uh, tend to elevate ourselves a bit too highly, yeah. And I think we, in our sinful, um, in in our sinful desires, we would want to elevate ourselves as high as possible, you know, as close to God as possible. Uh, and I, I think this, no, getting this distinction right would help to prevent that from happening. So when when we when we say here that God is the most free being, okay, it means that He is free. To do whatever he wants, okay, whatever he pleases, okay. Uh, just now I talked about how man is so caught up about his free will, okay. That cannot make sense, and that cannot be, because, okay, logically speaking, philosophically speaking, there can only ever be one truly free being in the universe, 
So the question is, is it you or God? Okay, really, it boils down to that. It's only either you are free, autonomous, and God is not, or God is free and autonomous, and you are not. Okay, you cannot have both. So that's why, um, to, to be philosophically coherent here, we will have to conclude and say that God can only be the only truly free creature. Okay, I won't say, no, sorry, he's not a creature. Can only be the... <laughs> oh no, Chris, Chris, you have seen Chris. You heretic, you are excommunicated. <laughs> you, can, you can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll leave it that in. He's the only truly free being in this entire universe. Okay? Yeah, Chris, Chris meant yeah. to say creator. He, 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 yeah, oh. creator. I meant to say creator. He is the creator. We are his creatures. Okay, get that straight. We are of a lower class than him. We are his creatures. <laughs> we have to get that sink into our heads. The uh, God's freedom. Uh, then, okay, since we're on this topic, let's talk a bit about that. What about, why if people ask this question? Can, if God is free, does it mean that he has a freedom to sin? I don't know if you guys have heard of this question before. I, I have come across this question a few times. No. Why? <laughs> Can you stop giving one? It's also, what do you mean by freedom? Is that God does all he wants, right? Psalm 115 verse 3. Uh, God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Uh, Isaiah uh, 14 as well. I think Isaiah 14. Yeah, he, he says something, he does it wherever he wants to. Um, th- uh, but when we say God is free we mean he does all that he wants according to his nature okay meaning he cannot go against his nature um in fact in the bible right you actually notice there are a lot of there are times where god the bible says god cannot do something for example god cannot lie uh that's in i think timothy or titus titus one i think uh in psalms it says god does not slumber nor sleep right so why? Because it's not it's not his nature, right? God cannot lie because God is truth. And the reason why God cannot sleep is because he is not like us, physical beings who need rest, right? Um, so when we mean God is free, we mean that he's free as he, uh, in so far that it, is he acts according to his nature. And if he goes against his nature, that is logically uh, contradictory and it's unbiblical. In fact, in, in fact, in fact, this is, um, I guess, uh, a critique god gave to the israelites where you know um israelites did a lot of bad stuff and then they thought god you know doesn't care you know and then god said to them do you think i was like you guys no i don't do the things that you guys do you know see even the bible says that god can't do these things why because he is god he's holding his righteous and just so yeah all right in light of the time uh yes i will squeeze everything together for the next part uh we talk about the most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. We have sort of touched on this a bit already. We will touch on more on this whole understanding of his counsel with together with the decree. I believe we will, we will touch on quite a bit of it in, in the decree in the next chapter. And then the next part. Now the next part is the most interesting part because it's God's attitude towards sinners. It's very interesting that, you know, uh, the, the confession states that he is the most loving, gracious, merciful, uh, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And before most just and terrible in his judgment, he thinks all sin and 
school will by no means clear the guilty. This is very interesting. It is there's a contrast here, you know, we have a contrast between God's attitude towards certain people and towards sin in general. So do you guys want to give a very quick summary of this contrast in, in the confession itself? Yeah, yeah. So, um, what, what was this contrast you were referring to again? Um, as in, so his contrast about, you know, we talk about God being merciful, right? I'll, yeah. I'll put it as merciful and gracious together in one category that he forgives sinners. But yeah, yeah, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, he still hates oh. the sin. Yeah, yes. Oh, I love this. <laughs> but I, I, I sort of expected that you guys would love this. Go so ahead, this is what we call the great dilemma, right? How can yes. God be the God of love no, that forgives iniquity, you know, that, that you know, people like King David can say, you know, blessed is the man whose, whose sins, iniquities are forgiven, you know. How can God be a God who loves and is merciful, yet leave the guilty unpunished? Okay, does this mean that God shows this kind of impartial um, love to some? That says, ah, it doesn't matter how much evil you have done, I'll just love you, because I just love you, bro. And then, but yet he must also punish those people that he said, I love you, bro, too. You know, so this God sounds a bit, uh, you know, schizophrenic. You know, he's a bit double-minded here. Uh, <laughs> but of course, that's not what this talks about, right? So there's this dilemma. There's this dilemma. Because another part of scripture also says that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination towards God. What on earth? <laughs> so how can... so so? How can God forgive people? Isn't he in some way justifying the wicked as well? So again, okay, um, this is a big question. But for all our listeners right here, the answer is simply found in the gospel. Okay, that is the gospel. Uh, because it is through the death of Christ because um, that this both attributes of God are satisfied perfectly. Because on one hand, when we look at the death of Christ, we see the punishment of the wicked. Okay, God will not leave the wicked unpunished. Yes, that's correct. But what did Jesus do? He died on behalf of wicked sinners like you and me. And it is because the justice of God that we deserve has been satisfied by Christ. Now, God can look at sinful people like us who believe in him and say that, yes, I will forgive your sins and I will remember them no more. Okay, so this is how God can be both loving and a God of, of perfect justice at the same time, without contradiction, because of Christ. Yeah, so yeah. Thank, thanks, Chris, for that. Dave, how can how can a God who loves but yet at the same time hates? Jacob, I love you, so I hate it. <laughs> right there. It. Let's go. Right there. Okay, but you know, but I'll 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 love to elaborate more on that. I, I guess uh, how does God love and hate? Right, He, he loves righteousness. He loves. Uh, justice and yet at the same time he hates sin and he hates evil right and then of course you look at us what are we <laughs> guess what we're not we're we're in the category that god hates right and so um chris said it very nicely uh right now i'll just read you guys a text um uh in romans chapter 3 where it shows both god's love towards us in that he justifies the wicked and yet it shows god's justice where it says it shows his righteousness. Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith here. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Here, here we see the two attributes. So that he might be just, and he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the cross, we see God's love as he justifies the ungodly, and we see God's righteousness as he punishes sin. All. As, as what Shailene says, all of attributes of God is seen at the cross. So, yeah. Okay, last and final question uh, that, that came to my mind a bit. Do you guys, have you guys met people, uh, Christians, when talking about people, have you met people, or actually generous, generally speaking, come to think of it, people who cannot comprehend, you know, where a person is forgiving, you know, he's forgiving, he's loving, he's merciful, I think more of that. And then, yet at the same time, that same person can hate. You know, love and hate seems very contradictory to apply to one person. Do you guys have, have, you guys have ever met such a person before? How do you approach them? How do you stick to them? Yeah, I, I, I think it's pretty simple. You just point out certain parts in their life where they are clearly going against what you just said. So, for example, if uh, a lot of people will say that if you are loving... You can't hate anyone, you know? You can't hate anything. You're supposed to be a person of love. And, you know, they'll say things like, you know, since God is love, he can never hate anything. But, for example, if I love good, I must hate evil, right? Logically speaking. If I love life, I must hate death. If I love, you know, if I love money, I must hate being poor. If I love, if I love babies, I must hate abortion. Okay, so, so things like that. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so for God, because he loves his holiness, because he loves his goodness, he must hate sin. And he does hate sin and the sinner. Okay, Psalm 5 verse 5. You can go look that up to anyone who thinks that God doesn't hate anybody or to buy into the whole idea that God loves, uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. No, you know, Asis Pro says this, when a person gets, when, when, what gets sent to hell? Think about what gets sent to hell. Is it the sin? No, rather it's actually the sinner. Okay, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think that's like enough said. That's enough said. And even for the unbeliever, that statement is self-refuting because there's so many areas of his his or her life that exposes the fact that she he or she actually hates something because they like they love something else. So it's contradictory. Yeah. I, I... Why I ask this question is actually because we are living in that kind of society where it seems that love and hate cannot go into the same person. You know, I, I feel that this is just the society that we're living in, especially in Asia. We talk about love, we talk about embrace, but at the same time, we don't talk about what we hate, you know, the opposite of it. So yeah, thanks, thanks Chris for that. Dave, do you have anything to say? I feel that you have. Go ahead. I like David, I like David Platt's way of doing it. It's so good. So David Platt, he stood up in the pulpit. He said, some people say that God only hates the sin, but not the sinner, right? And if you say God hates the sinner, it's bad, right? Okay. But if you look at the Psalms, um, you realize that even at the fifth Psalm, just the fifth Psalm, let me read it out to you, okay? I'm speaking of David Platt, like other things I can imitate him. See, Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. Sorry, Psalm 5, verse 4. <laughs> 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Well, I guess God doesn't hate sinners. He abhors them. And then people laugh. I mean, you can see that it's so clear in the Bible that God does not merely hate the sin, but he hates the sinner, right? God hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful, what? Not deceitfulness merely, but God hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful men, right? So uh, God hates the sinner, um, uh, and not this, uh, not just merely the sin, but we praise God for his grace that he sent Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ uh, took our sin and stuff, like yeah, I, I think I think what I think when we say God loves the sin, so hates the sin but loves the sinner, um, we also give this implicit um idea that sin is something external to us. You know, that's not it's not part of us. It's not us. Uh, of course, uh, our doctrine of original sin, our doctrine of total depravity goes against that. Lah. But yeah, you're you're right. Um, uh, YB that um, and what Chris said lah, the idea that if God since God can love, God can hate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. You know, you guys talking about loving <coughs> God, loving the sinner, and hating the sin. Very, very common uh, expression today in the Christian culture. We will talk more about that actually when we come to the fall of man and sin and the punishment thereof, the punishment of the sinner, and not just the sin. God don't punish the sin. If God punished the sin, all of us would be saved. But no, as you said, there is no there is no separation between. The sinner and the sin. I, I I mean I think it's quite obvious in the name itself, lah. Sinner. So yeah. Okay, with that, uh, any more things that you guys want to add on before we end off? Yes, no, maybe. All right, then. No. then oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, Chris. No, 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 for for now, for now, no. I, I think we've talked about a lot of things already. Yeah, yeah, we have. Maybe. Do you have any good book to recommend? Uh, to people <laughs> listening uh, on the attributes of God. Holiness of God by J.C. Ryle. <laughs> oh, I was going to say Holiness by R.C. Sproul. Oh, yeah. I, I, I believe there's a few authors that wrote on the Holiness of God. I, I think the most clear one would be Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Uh, yes. Oh, that's a good that's one. Good. Sorry, I'm talking about Very Holiness. Short. just thinking of the whole thing. Very short. Yeah. If you want, can High Kelvinist Sorry. Uh, uh, do, you, do you guys have uh, come on Chris do you have any sermons uh, to, to recommend uh, on of course, it's such a big topic though like uh, so Paul Washer God oh, yeah. the just and the justifier of the wicked <laughs> sounds good Dave what about you do you have any recommendation books or sermons or whatever yeah, like, I, I, I think the one I would say that's the most over, big overview is God's uh Attributes by uh, Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. But I think another one that came to my mind, I remember hearing it so well, uh, would be um, it is in Ligonia. It's by Stephen Lawson, Stephen Gospel, oh. uh, Stephen Lawson. Uh, <laughs> and it's called Attributes of God. But I, it's a teaching series, but you would have to, or you can just go YouTube and search it. Like, I think it's like different sessions. It's free, right? Yeah. Right now, it's, it's still free. Right? I, right now, I don't know, but I, I think I think it's taken from his book, Attributes of God. Yeah. And I think, uh, and uh, oh wait, no, it's not a book. It's a CD. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Lawson is solid. Yeah, Lawson. Yeah. Or you can read Concise Theology or any systematic theology that you wish. <laughs> I think most of them will explore this area of God. All right. Is that is it? Uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, 
we're going to turn out another episode hopefully by this weekend and then we're going to explore another aspect of god thank you guys for coming and thank you guys for listening this episode is on time one hour goodbye everyone do 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 do